Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Are you ready to minimize overwhelm and maximize your capacity to do your best work? In April, I'll be offering the Spring Clean for Authors four-week online support group to help you declutter your personal and professional lives. You can show your interest by pre-RSVPing today. Just visit ethanfreckleton.com slash declutter. That's ethanfreckleton.com slash declutter. Link will also be available in the show notes. What do Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and author Chris Fox all have in common? Well, Chris is best known as the right-to-market guy, but he's also a best-selling science fiction and fantasy author. And selling books wasn't always a slam dunk for Chris, but he's learned that understanding reader psychology is the key to having a full-time career telling stories. That's why last year was his best yet for revenue despite a significant slowdown in output. So what's the reason for the slowdown? And what's the answer to my opening question about what he has in common with Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela? You'll have to listen to find out. Chris Fox, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. When the listeners won't know it, but this will be my third interview in three days as I kind of batch up some conversations for February while we go on vacation. And it's really fun to get to talk to people every day. And yeah, I can definitely see the allure, um, uh, you know, especially doing what we do. It is, is a very solitary profession. So having the opportunity to have some conversations is kind of nice. Yeah. Just, I'm in my home office and in the County and yeah, there's not a lot of people around. So having, bringing people in on my own schedule is pretty cool. But for people who don't know you, Chris, can you introduce yourself? Maybe say a little about whatever you want to say about yourself, really. Uh, sure. I've been a, a full-time author since 2016. Um, I published professionally as a novelist um, in 2014. Um, and I've done pretty well for myself. I have uh, well, something like 30 books in print, um, and I've been making a pretty good living um, year after year. But... Uh, I don't know. Beyond that, I'm not sure what to say. I write science fiction and fantasy are what I love the most. 
Mm. Um, but what I'm best known for is, is I think the Write Faster, Write Smarter series of, of books I put out for authors. Mm-hmm. Um, much to my surprise, I, I wrote those not really knowing what was going to happen. They sort of blew up um, back in 2015 through 2017. Yeah. Um, and, and we're sort of everywhere. So that's what I'm best known for, although where most of the money comes from is science fiction. Mm. So in 30 years, I don't know if you can anticipate this or not, but what would you like to be best known for? I want to be known as the best fantasy author who has ever lived. Mm. Tell me more about that. Like what motivates that? Um, fantasy has been part of my life since I was a very small child. Um, we're talking, you know, five, six years of age. And I had a very uh, tumultuous childhood, um, as I'm sure many people listening have. Um, and so fantasy was was in many ways a security blanket for me. And mm. stories like the Chronicles of Prydain and The Hobbit, these these sort of taught me to become an adult. Um, and, and, you know, lots of fun lessons along the way. And so mm. what I would like to leave as a legacy is a story that can instill all of those lessons into future generations in a way that is enjoyable and outlasts me. Mm. That's, that's, I love that. that. That sounds like mission and passion and something beneficial to people beyond your own having a career. That's pretty cool. So would you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, what maybe reading has done, did for you and affected you? growing up? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it had a huge effect. I, I, you know, I think that most of the, the readers of science fiction and fantasy, at least that I know, who started at a young age, we were shy, you know, introverts. And so we had a lot of difficulty adapting to the social order. Um, many of us were bullied. Uh, and mm. probably my, my favorite review on my most recent novel, Dying World, um, it's from a, a kid in Australia, and he, you know, he he said that it spoke to him, and he recognized that the protagonist had been bullied, even though it's not stated explicitly anywhere in the book. Just mm. the mannerisms and the way that the the the, the characters were acting. Um, I have a kid who has been badly bullied and is learning to get confidence, and, and to hear from uh, a fan that I was reaching him in that way was was really amazing. That's cool, and and when you write these characters are you kind of doing it intuitively is or like was that kind of built in that knowledge that the character was bullied or is that just part of you seeping into the character um it's me seeping into the character but this time very consciously so my early novels it was somewhat subconscious that bits of me would leak into those characters and i would lean on those experiences now i can uh, do it with a lot more um, conscious control and, and sort of decide what I want to instill. So this was um, kind of an intentional choice. Mm. And early on, I don't know how you felt about it. Did you ever feel like maybe that was going to be too vulnerable to have yourself in the story? Uh, the first time I did it, yes. Um, that happened in a novel called Hero Born, which I wrote back in 2015. Um, mm. It was loosely based on like my my life, like my commute to work was used. I mean, it was crazy how much that mm. I, I leaned on what I knew. Um, and it was hard writing about um, relationships I had with people in, in life. So I mean, it was obviously disguised and things were changed and morphed. But um, just opening up even kind of a window into your your psyche that way was difficult. It's very hard especially if you get bad reviews i mean for mm. artists you know we're, we're all susceptible to bad reviews um, well that assumes you even finished the book <laughs> <laughs> so what did, true. Yeah, so what did you like what did you need to finish that first book 
Um, I think I needed motivation. You, 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 and when I say motivation, no, that's, that's incorrect. Um, I think I needed a purpose, mm. you know, motivation is, is what you can feel for an afternoon, but, but a purpose, a reason. Um, mm. and for that reason to, to be possible, um, for us, I think we have to accept that it is possible that, you know, oh, I can really do this. And so I think I said to myself, I can really be a professional author and man, this girl that I like would be really impressed if I did it. Mm. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the final nudge that I needed, but a lot of it was, I, I finally saw being an author as a real possibility. Like I could finish a novel I was proud of and publish it and maybe even make a little money doing it. Right. Right. That makes sense to me. I, I remember experiencing the same thing when I was discovered the music industry for real. <laughs> like I went mm -hmm. to a to a conference. I thought it was going to be a vacation, and it turned out to be like a real professional conference with people at the very top of their game who were talking about like the craft and how the business works. And I was like, wait a minute, this is feels totally accessible now. Like, hey, I could do this, and that was really empowering to feel. Um, and so why do your readers read, do you think? Is it similar similar need for them as what you went through? I could talk for hours about why my readers read. Um, it's a huge, huge uh, focus of my profession. For the last three years, really, I've, I've just delved into that. I'm what I call reader psychology. Mm. And it's different based on what series you're talking about. So I have a military science fiction series, and those people are more looking for kind of a band of brotherhood they can be a part of. Um, either they were never in the military and kind of wish they had been and want to see what it was like, mm. or more likely they are veterans of one branch of the armed, armed forces or another. Um, and, and this is, you know, a way for them to sort of recapture that feeling they have where they were part of a team in a way that they will never be again once they mm. left the military. Mm. Um, and these people are craving a similar experience. So while they like science fiction, most of these readers, they basically want a modern military experience with modern ballistics in a sci-fi atmosphere. Whereas right. fans of my Magitech Chronicles, which is, you know, dragons staring apart starships, epic space fantasy, um, these people crave the same thing that, you know, eight-year-old Chris wanted. They, they want heroes that start out powerless that are growing in strength and doing the right thing and you know protecting those who need it and you know they want the true hero's journey i'm really just changing the location mm -hmm. that makes sense and like how did you develop an awareness of this um the primary tool i would argue is is reviews and this is something that as a new author, it's hard to get because, you know, you, you are just probably only have one or two books out and maybe only have a few dozen reviews total after a year's time. Right. Um, and if you're newer than that, you might not even have, you know, one review yet. Maybe you're still trying to get that first one. Right. I'm fortunate enough that I have thousands of reviews. And so I read them and I listen to what people say. And, you know, some of them are useless and they're just criticism. And some of them are extraordinarily useful. And, and it cuts you to like the center of your soul where you're like, mm. oh, you're right. You know, I screwed up in this way or... You know, I made this mistake, I made to be correct it going forward. And if you do that enough times, you start to realize what things upset most readers in that genre. And so mm -hmm. I started thinking about, well, well, why does it upset them? Why are these things upsetting them? And um, I, I would use just really quickly the example of The Last Jedi. How, regardless of how you feel about the movie, mm -hmm. um, the subset of fans that were, were upset, most of them seem to be upset about the treatment of Luke. And, and I would argue that's because mm -hmm. Luke is a mythological character that we encountered at a very young age. And so when, when one of those archetypes that is so important to us is 
mishandled, we react badly, we react emotionally. And I started to realize there is that tie between um, our childhood, our moral compass, our beliefs, um, uh, really all, all of us, uh, and mythology, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so I guess what you might be saying then is if you change the tone, if you shift the tone of a character or a book away from meeting the need of the person who is reading and enjoying it to something else, um, then you've basically stopped meeting that reader's need. Exactly. As a reader, I'm picking up a book for a specific reason and I'm, I'm craving a certain emotional resonance and experience. And as the storyteller, if you, if you change up the tone or you provide a tone different than what that reader was expecting, um, they're going to let you know in reviews. Yeah. And uh, I'm sensitive to this conversation right now because I just got done with a bonus episode with somebody who's more on the marketing side. And they talked a lot about that urgent need and in their own life right now, how what they're needing is something light hearted, right? And accessible and escape. And so not they're having a hard time finding that in the book market. So they just went back to reading Harry Potter. And it seems really crucial to having an author business or a business of any sort where you're telling stories um, that you need to know what experience you're delivering and, and who needs that experience, I guess. If you're doing it at the highest level, you need to predict where it will be in five years. And you can do this by understanding the geopolitical climate, technology. Um, you have to be a true Renaissance person, in my, appearance, in my uh, opinion, to really master writing at that level because uh, books and their popularity are going to mirror the times that they're in. If we have a wonderful, happy time, like I did when I was in high school in the 90s, you know, it was a mm. great time. Uh, mm -hmm. Our economy was booming in the United States. Um, yeah. There were, you know, fewer wars to speak of. Um, we craved darker fiction. We wanted more grim dark. But mm. you get into a point where po you're in a post 9-11 world and, and everything is darker and grittier and your real life is harder and your family is struggling. You want more lighthearted stuff. You know, you're, you get burnt out on The Walking Dead and on the Game of Thrones of the world. You, you start craving a yeah. different tone. You know, that's interesting. So, uh, just think about that personally, because as my own life has kind of gotten better, as I've been more intentional in the last few years, uh, I've been more able to read those darker stories and access them personally. And I don't write those stories, but that's an interesting way to look at it that you, you're talking about. Um, and yet The Witcher is doing all right. Is that dark or is that lighthearted? In your opinion. Uh, it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, it's it's not dark in the way Game of Thrones is dark. Game of Thrones is brutal. Um, mm. The Witcher has dark moments. There are certainly some some dark things that occur in the series, but it's more tastefully done, in my opinion. Mm. Mm. And so this conversation feels like it links in an intuitive way to that thing you're known for, right? That right to market <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> and writing to trend and and. I'm sure we, we, we know there's people on the whole spectrum of, I want to write to market, I want to write to trend, to I just want to write full time and I hope I can write what I want to write, to I don't care about any of that, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. and, and so how applicable is this conversation about tone and understanding your reader to people in those segments? 
Uh, if you are consciously writing to market, it's critical, absolutely critical. Your business will not survive long-term at the top level if you don't understand these things that I'm talking about. Mm. If you are more of an, if you consider yourself more of an artist, um, lean into that, lean into that hard and focus on immersion. Immerse yourself in your craft, immerse yourself in your genre, become the best you absolutely can. Know your your genre back backwards and forwards mm. um, and become the best author you can be. Because at the end of the day, no matter how you get there, you're gonna need to be the best author you can be and you're gonna need to create something amazing. And you can do that artistically by focusing purely on craft and learning story on your own, or you can do it by looking at markets and either mimicking those or saying, okay, I think readers are going to be interested in this new niche, so I'm going to create it. Mm. Yeah, and I've been doing this podcast for almost half a year now, and the one thing that's been like uniform across all the different types of people I talk to is nobody who's succeeded has done it alone. And I'm curious who your first kind of mentors or like, or whether in person or just influencers that kind of brought you around to what you needed to know to get started. I would argue um, there was a bunch of them. So it wasn't a one or two person, you know, um, like mentorship. There was a whole bunch of us back in 2014 on, on keyboards um, mm. was a, I think it's still around. Um, I haven't been to keyboards in some time. Um, <clears throat> but at the time, uh, Hugh Howey was fairly active in his posting, and so he had lots of good advice. Yeah. Um, Wayne, Wayne Stinnett, though, um, I think was the best sharer because what Wayne would do is break down his launch um, by day and say, okay, these are the promotional tools that I used, and um, these are the number of sales, and these were my ranks you know, on each of the days. And, and he was really what inspired me to share in the same way. Mm. Um, and I had a good friend at the same time, uh, a fantasy author by the name of Sever Brony, um, who did the same thing. And so we just kept sharing our information and a, kind of a group of us grew up together. And as we learned things, we would tell each other and we formed, you know, smaller communities as outgrowths of K-boards and uh, have kind of been pooling our knowledge ever since. Yeah. And um, so would you say that that's like very consciously why you share to the level you share then just that you had that modeled for you and you could see the value for you? Uh, no, I, I, the reason for me, and it took me a long time to learn about this. Um, am I, am I saying this right? I think I'm an INTJ. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm an advocate and, and it took me a long time to accept this and I rolled my eyes a lot. Uh, <laughs> I want new writers to be able to succeed mm. and I want them to have the resources to do that. And I think the reason is because when I was a kid, uh, you couldn't become a novelist. Like that was never going to happen. You needed to know the right people. You needed to schmooze. You needed to go to cons and, you know, wait in lines to meet agents. And uh, I just looked around at all these kids like me that were playing D and D in our backyards. And we just wanted to write fun stories. And I didn't yeah. understand why that wasn't possible. And once I figured out it was possible, I'm like, well, I should go tell all the geeks how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And <laughs> I I love that you you resisted this and fought this so much. You know, it's... well, yeah, when I looked when I took the test, it said I was most similar to people like Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela, and I was like, what? <laughs> I am way too selfish to be anywhere near that list of people. So I, I did have to kind of roll my eyes. But when you read it, you're like looking at the personality traits and the things that'll make you upset, and you know what your personality flaws are. You're like, wow, that's way too accurate. <laughs> uh huh. So what, what do Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and Chris Fox have in common? 
Uh, we all want to to uplift uh, our tribe and see them all succeed. Mm. I love that. And what happens if you're successful at that? Like what happens for you and what happens for the tribe? Uh, I think, I mean, you, you, the, a rising tide lifts all boats really works. And I've gotten to see that in action since 2014 when I got into this. Hmm. We effectively created the military science fiction genre. I got to watch the epics, you know, fantasy genre evolve. I can look down the Amazon top 100 of science fiction and fantasy authors. and I, I know 85% of those people. Yeah. Um, it's it's amazing to have seen this field evolve and all of us just sort of pooled our data and said, hey, we're doing this, it's working. And we're all telling stories that we love. And sure, there's some competition, but I've made amazing friends. I've read novel series from authors that have just moved me to tears. Mm. I mean, there are some amazing books out there that now exist because we came together at this time in history to create the indie movement and, and to make this all happen. And, you know, it's it's been kind of a privilege to be a part of that. Mm. So if that's true, then do you believe like in ladders and hierarchy and that, and that somebody should be the best or the market leader? Uh, I, I mean, yes, there's always going to be a market leader. There's going to be somebody at the top and, and they usually want it more. Um, I know people and I talk to them on a regular basis that are selling, you know, way better than I am because they mm. love it. And, and that's what they want to do with their time. Yeah. Um, I would much rather spend my time dreaming up, you know, new spells and, and equipment for my role playing game and, you know, spending time with my son. And, and I just don't have that hunger to be the most successful author in the world. I just want to mm. be the person who writes the best story. Ah, so is it possible that the most successful author in the world could be that model of not selling as much, but having more time with the kid and the family? Absolutely. Since anybody gets to define what success is in their own book. Um, but what I say, you know, when I say success, I mean what, what society tells us success is because society mm. is measuring, you know, money and status and book sales. And that's what we're supposed to, you know, supposed to crave. Right. And I imagine that started as like a proxy for having time, <laughs> right? Like, well, that's literally literally what it represents is the amount of time we can purchase. Like if you take all that money, we can, you know, buy rent, which is time we can live places or buy a house, you know, you can buy food. I mean, it's just sort of, uh, you're spending other people's labor, if that makes sense. Right. Although the acquisition of money to have time may mean that paradoxically that you have less time <laughs> it, it can i was the you know and i am a workaholic i spend way too much time working um it's just that in the last two years since becoming an author it's stuff i really enjoy and i'm passionate mm. about mm. when i was a software engineer i did some amazing stuff i walked away with software patents um you know my app was on the colbert report at one point i mean i get to do some neat stuff but mm -hmm. i didn't love it yeah yeah i get that i worked in software at a high level too and you know, having the social experience and shared purpose was really cool. Mm -hmm. And, and, but at the end of the day, it's renting my time out for money. Right. Never it again. <laughs> it doesn't feel that way anymore, which is good, which is really liberating. And so you're, you're recently a father very recently. So congratulations for that. Thank and, you. Yeah. One month ago. Yeah. So speaking of time and energy and capacity, to keep a business going or to keep your creativity flowing? Like, are you learning any early lessons? Um, 
I'm trying to, to distill that down into a lesson, and I don't know that I have enough data Ooh. yet. Yeah, it doesn't I have to say, be. It doesn't have to be a lesson. Maybe just like observations or. Yeah, the, the observation is that it doesn't impact me as much as I thought it would. Um, mm. I knew it was coming. I knew I would have less free time. I knew I was going to have to cut a lot of stuff out of my life. I knew I would get less sleep. Um, but I've structured my life in a way that supports that. So, uh, I will at like I don't know uh, seven o'clock at night. My my wife will go to bed. She'll sleep until like ten. Then you know she'll wake up. I'll hand off the the kid. I'll wake up again at like three or four. Um, and I'll hold him until six or seven and then I'll go to the gym. So I'm still doing all the stuff that I did before. I mm. just feel like I have a lot fewer hours to put it into. Yeah, that makes sense. And so how does that shift your expectations then for your, your career for the year ahead? Um, not meaningfully at all. I, mm. I learned a, a fairly difficult lesson. Um, and I, I think it might've been Brian Cohen that phrased it best for me. We, we talk a lot. Um, you can get up to about mid six figures yourself. And, and I'm at that point where, you know, if you don't really have a team and you're just kind of working with contractors, um, you can push to that point. If you want to get past that point, you've got to build a team. Yeah. And so what I'm doing differently this year is building a team and uh-huh. I have enough novels now in print and they're good and I know they're good. I've got my role-playing game Kickstarter in a few weeks here. Um, I, I really feel strongly about the stuff that we're releasing this year. And I think it's going to do extraordinarily well. So I can take my foot off the gas a little bit and I'm going to have to, and I'm going to have to start trusting assistants and employees. And that's difficult for me, but every last person I've talked to mm. um, that's succeeding at a higher level than me has said that that's where you got to go. And mm. I'm really proud of what I was able to do on my own, but you know, I, I grossed, um, I hope this isn't too, too uh, corny to, to talk numbers, but I grossed, um, just over three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in twenty nineteen, yeah. and you know it about killed me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I don't think there's anything too corny to talk about because you know we get. But I'm I'm seeing uh, people we, that are are making five and six times that amount of money who because yeah. they built a wonderful team um, aren't necessarily working harder. In fact, maybe not are not working as hard, and and so that's become more of a mission where it's like, okay, cool. I see how this works and what I need to do. And and I'm going to go out and I'm going to do that. Right. Now I imagine you, it wouldn't really make sense to have a team until you understood what your voice is and your tone and those things about your reader psychology. Right. Right. There's, there's, there's levels foundational, to this. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you want to make sure you've mastered the levels, you know, on the way up where you, you know, you've got to work on your craft. You've got to work on basic marketing and, it's a long time before you hire your first uh, virtual assistant, much yeah. less start building a large team. I think where people get overwhelmed in the beginning is they hear advice and get input from all sorts of places, right? And from very few people who are just a couple steps ahead of them. And so there, and there can be this overwhelm and expectations that way I have to do all these things right up front and and I wonder how, how do you make that less intimidating for new writer, Chris? <laughs> I just did a video going. on this. No, I oh. feel well prepared to answer this. The name awesome. of the video is wipe the slate clean. Mm. Um, the problem that we run into is that you, you have these 92 things that you're supposed to do. Oh, I got to put my reader magnet on book funnel and I got to set up my mailing list and you know, I've got to run at least $5 a day in ads on Amazon. So I got to learn how to do that. And then, oh, but I also have to do Facebook and Oh no, BookBub's hot too. I can't not be on BookBub. Oh, and then somebody said, Reddit's cool. I got to do Reddit. So mm-hmm. before you know it, it just keeps ballooning and expanding. And what people don't realize is if your craft is not absolutely perfect, 
if your passive marketing is not absolutely perfect, if you don't have a crazy, amazing cover, do mm. not pass go, do not collect $200, do not worry about any of the rest of this stuff. Apply the Pareto principle, find the 20% of the stuff that's going to help you succeed. And for us as authors, that's your cover, your blurb, and about the first 3,000 words of your book. Really, mm. you can control those things. And until you can say with absolute certainty that you've mastered all three of those, don't worry about the rest of the stuff. Right. And so is it fair to expect that I can do that with my first book, my 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 hero born? Would it have been fair to have expected that you could achieve mastery with that book? Uh, you know, it, it, annoyingly, some people sleep too, but that seems to be the exception, not the rule. The vast majority of us, you release your first book. Um, most of us have, our expectations are way too high because yeah. we're usually being mentored by people that are more successful than we are. Yep. And we'll be really disappointed, even though most new authors would just, you know, shake their fist at us because our launch was amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll be like, oh man, I can't believe I didn't do even better. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to shake that off. So that's totally, think, that was totally me with my first book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So surrounding yourself with authors helps who are around your level, a little bit above, a little bit below, because we've all had bad launches. And so you see somebody really impacted and we can, you know, help pick each other up. And, and I think all of us need that. Yeah. Maybe that's like the paradoxical challenge of being in a community, like 20 books to 50 K mm -hmm. where, where we hear from people at the top of their game all the time. Right. And it feels like the rule rather than the exception. Just sure. And, and I got to tell you this too, from the people at the top, yeah. when you're at the top, you, you have to work hard to stay at the top and there's always a new top. Like if you're doing $350,000, if I'd have said that in, in 2017, people's jobs would have dropped, Yeah, you know, and now that's like, Oh, you're only making $350,000 a year. You know, it, it's so interesting watching the arms race effect. Yeah. And you know, and I think, 99% of people listening to this would, you know, would love to make $350,000 a year doing what they love. Right. And, and do you encounter many people who kind of work and aspire, you know, different levels in the traditional book publishing world? I sure don't. Um, I, I don't know too many trad pub people, to be honest. I do meet some of them. Um, and I always try to spend time with them when they do because I find the conversations fascinating because they have such a different experience than I do. Yeah. Um, I will say that, uh, and I'm not going to name any names, but I will say that the authors that I've spent the most time with who have published long-term traditionally mm. are very, very bitter about the process and very excited to learn about the indie world. <laughs> right. And I imagine at that point when you've passed through that many gatekeepers, your craft, you've been forced to get really good at the craft would, would have slowed you down in a good way yeah. that you're really starved for that financial success at that point. <laughs> it, 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 it's just criminal too. I, I know a couple of authors that I read as a child um, who are now on the equivalent of social security in their respective nations. And yeah. you know, the, the publishers kept all the money. So it's, it's nice that um, people who have these wonderful imaginations and, and bring us these stories can, can keep a larger slice of the pie. So Amazon gets demonized a lot, but I'm really grateful for the marketplace they've created. Yeah. It, and, you know, it's variable by the type of product you create, right? And what the market's willing to pay. Because I came from the music side and it got to the point where it transitioned to my, a collection of work was going to be worth three to six cents <laughs> at best in the best marketplaces for, say, an album for somebody to stream it regularly.
And I don't know any math or any marketing where it works to have a cost of acquisition under six cents. <laughs> so I think we're really lucky in the independent book publishing space. For, for, yeah, for now. And this, this won't last forever. Um, you, you will see a, a race to the bottom once Amazon has obliterated all, all competition. But, you know, I, I don't want to, to make doom and gloom, you know, uh, that, that's not the way I think the future is going to go for us. So there will be a new marketplace if one needs to emerge. And I think, you know, Amazon's always going to at least pay us decently, yeah. um, but margins are going to go down and there is going to be an ever increasing amount of competition. And that's where it comes back to quality. If right. you can't write truly amazing stories that are polished and perfect in almost every way, then um, you're competing with people who are. Right. Unless I suppose you create a genre that people are starved for perhaps that will be one of the most popular um, methodologies going forward is picking a new niche that hasn't been done and writing it and what you'll find is uh, the first few people who get into that niche will do extremely well and the profit will start dropping in that niche but in general the percentages that were paid i think are going to go down and we're at 70 percent excuse me we're at um 70% right now with Amazon, but there was a time when it was 35 and it was only Apple entering the arena and paying us 70% that made Amazon change it. So mm -hmm. there's every possibility they could walk that back. Yeah, I think you're right. And so obviously you can't go and create a genre alone. You, you kind of talked about how military sci-fi, you know, it took, it took a tribe, a community really to create that. Um, and do you know anybody who's single-handedly created a genre on their own? Ah, I'm sure there's tons of people. Um, like anytime a, a new in, in event, innovative book comes out, although my sleep-deprived brain is, is not leaping, you know, mm. leaping up uh, to anything. Like what are some new genres that came out recently? Um, you know, that RPG game lit. There was no one book that kicked that off. Um, that was more of an organic growth. Although I would argue the first big hit that like started pushing it was the sword art online anime coming to Netflix. Right, right. And, and maybe that's true for a few. Um, I, arguably, right, and I don't know your perspective because you've probably read this these types of books a lot more, but you have a series that's known for being kind of a blend, like a mashup of two genres, right? Mm -hmm. that, that science fantasy. Did you want to talk more about that? Like, yeah, I, I call it epic space fantasy um, because that, that more accurately tells you what the series is about. It's it's very much epic fantasy with, you know, uh, you've got a, a young, weak character growing in strength and learning, you know, to be better and eventually becoming a god by the end. Um, and you've got, you know, uh, all the trappings of fantasy just sort of set in a sci-fi world. So mm. all of your usual sci-fi tropes are present. We have, you know, the military science fiction stuff and space marines, but we also have dragons and um, you know, magic and mages and various races and all the D and D tropes. Right. Uh, like you, you kind of have like the two cover unicorns, like on the same cover. I remember when you, right. You've got dragons and spaceships. Like, yeah. <laughs> and the, the cover for the role-playing game is, is probably the single finest uh, piece of artwork I've, I've ever produced out of, out of my, uh, my catalog because right. it has those, it has a ship, it has a dragon, it's got the planet. The typography is amazing. Uh, and it tells you right off the bat, oh, I'm, I'm basically going to play D&D &D in space and it's going to yeah. be fun. Cool. I'll, I want to get to that in a second, but I just wanted to close on the other one by asking, like, what were your expectations for for that, the Magitech Chronicles books when you published book one? 
Um, I, pretty close to what happened. I was fairly certain that the market was there and that they would be interested and that you had a whole bunch of epic fantasy fans that wanted to see a similar story in a new environment with um, new things they didn't expect. Like in this case, you know, some cyberware and some technology and some rifles and, you know, starships. They wanted that added into a story that they could recognize. Mm. Uh, so I made sure that the cover screened that and the title screened that. Technage was the name of the first book and launched it and it sailed up to number 92 in the store i want to say so yeah. it became an amazon best-selling series um and largely because i think i perfectly hit that mashup where if you were a fan of of military science fiction you might be willing to give it a shot um and if you were a fan of epic fantasy then you might be willing to give it a shot right and like i assume part of you feeling confident in that is because it was something you're personally like aligned with in terms of your taste but like what were what were some of those leading indicators that gave you like that confidence? Um, I I would need like two hours to give you the, the the long version, but the short version is I understand my market incredibly well, and I am my market. I read the same stuff and I know them. And so when you know science fiction, you watch every new science fiction show that's come out since 1975, mm. and you've watched every fantasy show and you've read thousands of novels in in fantasy and science fiction. And you can tell me about Warhammer 40K and Firefly and um, Babylon 5 and, you know, every version of Star Trek from every continuum. And you can, you know, you read the Republic Commando Star Wars novels. And you just go down this list of culture that, mm. um, that you've consumed. When you've reached a point where you've consumed it all, uh, you really can look at the market as a whole and say, this is what's popular now. Ooh, I bet they'd like this. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about this role-playing game because you kind of put your writing on hold for a while to to do this project and I was hoping you'd talk about it and why you're doing it, what's motivating it, and hopefully like what it's giving you in an intrinsic level as well. This is uh, kind of my Ikagi, um, which uh, for those not familiar is, is uh, something I would recommend Googling. That's I-K-A-G-I. It's the intersection of your passion um, and kind of your life purpose and what you do for a living. Mm. Um, I love role-playing games. I started playing when I was six years old uh, with Dungeons and Dragons and have played ever since. And they're wonderful teaching aids. They are a wonderful way for kids who feel alienated or on the outside to be brought into a group and learn uh, relationships. They're just amazing. And they're wonderful storytelling devices. They're interactive storytelling. So it is mm -hmm. the activity I've loved the most in my life. And long before I wanted to be an author, I was a game master and I was a player and I was doing these games. So when I became an author, it was just an outgrowth of being a dungeon master. And I always wanted to get back to my gaming roots. And one mm -hmm. day I realized, wait, I have a bunch of artwork. I've got a bunch of money because I've sold a bunch of novels. Why don't I finally make that a reality? So that's what I'm doing. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, Funny enough, so the next episode coming out is with uh, screenwriter of District 9. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I love that movie, by the way. But, Likewise. And so I have a friend who's like a super fan, and so I had questions for her. And Like, it turns out, like, her Ikagi is totally not that at all. <laughs> it's just funny to have that perspective, and it sounds like for you, like, this is the thing, right? The big thing. And so to have this role-playing game system, I assume you're having to do a lot of collaboration in working with others? Not a ton. Um, not as much as you'd expect. Most role-playing games are developed by large staffs of people. This one is primarily me. 
cool. doing most of the rules. So I have a wonderful community, a Facebook group where um, people are discussing the rules and asking questions and helping. Um, mm. But most of the content has been generated by me thus far. And the reason why I'm doing it this way is the same reason why as a software developer, you like having control of your own code base. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to build something perfect. And when I say perfect, I mean mathematically perfect. Mm. Uh, Role-playing games are designed to be an engine that help people have fun and tell fun stories. And lots of role-playing games are really badly designed. And so you'll play, and what will happen is as a game master, you'll write a story designed to entertain people for eight hours. They'll be sitting at a table. Somebody has spent you know, hours or days or weeks or even months in a long game um, thinking about it in the head of this character. And if you roll badly with dice, that character can just be eradicated and dead instantly right. or can have something very bad happen to them. Um, or that character can just feel powerless. You know, maybe you, you envisioned Legolas and you want to be like Legolas, but right. you just keep rolling badly on that D20. Well, or you just chose to be a bard and you can never be good. Right. You just, you know, you, you made the wrong choice of character <laughs> creation. Sorry. You know, now you're never going to be relevant. That's a, a real problem in my opinion. And so I want a system that you can organically grow your character over time and not be punished for just playing. Hmm. So it sounds like this fusion of you being like really good at storytelling and having the software background where algorithms and precision matter is really going to be a great marriage for people who crave what you crave in this game i hope um, so i mean i know there's a niche there and and i've got a lot of experience and i'm qualified i think to provide something pretty cool i've got a, a rabid group of people who feel the same and we're, we're building together so awesome. i'm hoping that if we can make our community large enough we can make something really really cool well i sincerely wish you the best with that i know that that's a challenging market just because of there's a lot of volume of stuff but a lot of things that fail to meet people's expectations too imagine mm -hmm. sometimes people get gun shy with something that takes a lot of time to learn on the other hand you have ships and dragons and who doesn't like that <laughs> yeah that's uh that's probably the single biggest advantage that i have and, and this comes from a lifetime as a gamer um, i still remember the very first time i picked up a book that uh, took my breath away and made me wonder what it was about that wasn't a novel it was uh, Shadowrun, Fassa's Shadowrun back yeah. in 1989. Yeah. And it was an elf standing in front of an ATM machine. And she was robbing the ATM machine. And you had an orc that was standing guard. So there was obviously magic and elves and orcs and cyberware. And it was like, mm. what is this game? Mm -hmm. uh, and shortly thereafter, I saw the cover of Rifts, which had, um, I think it's called a Splugorth Slave Barge, if you've read the rules. But you know, this fantastic art that fired the imagination. And I see a lot of role-playing games that come out and these people have great concepts and great ideas, but they don't have, you know, a $30,000 art budget like I do. Right. So while we're talking about this, because this is the fearless storyteller, it's not the fearless author. Like, can we talk like how storytelling's different in terms of mindset and approach for developing a role-playing game system? Absolutely, um, and this is why this is why I love. Uh, you would be you would be my first person to talk about this, so this is good. Oh yeah, I'd go on for hours about this. Uh, this is why I love role playing more than than writing even. And writing is a lot of fun, but it's very solitary, and you have to make all your own decisions. Mm. The beauty of role playing, especially if you have the right group, if you're sitting around a table with five of your friends, and you've got you know your your soda and your chips, and you're in the head of Rygar the Barbarian, mm. um, and your dungeon master is telling you about this adventure. Everyone is part of a seamless whole, and no one can predict where that hole is going to go. The game master mm. can give you the parameters, but it's interactive storytelling. And 
unexpected, wonderful things will occur as a result and, and hilarious things. And you'll have all these great moments that uh, you never otherwise would have. And as a GM, it's much more like conducting a symphony mm-hmm. um, where you're, you're having to watch at any given time. So if you see something go out of alignment where um, maybe a player looks like they're disengaging, you have to troubleshoot that and say, okay, why aren't they interested? You know, is it their character? Are they not succeeding? Mm. And so you then have to give them story elements to draw them in. So you figure out what their character's background is. And, you know, maybe their father was, you know, some missing knight and you, you bring him into the game and you make up a story around him and you, you engage that character and you pull them in. And so as the GM, you're weaving all these threads at once, trying to keep all these storylines going mm. uh, and connecting to each other. And, and that experience and that interactive interactive uh storytelling is is some of the most fun i've ever had in my life so is it more the responsibility of the author of the module or the role-playing game or the gm to be able to be flexible to meet the the player's needs in a story um i i think that it has to be both and the problem you run into is if you're an inexperienced game master you don't know when a system is good or bad you just play by the rules and do what it says and so, you know, you, you, you will tend to blunder around. So if you can give them a better, easy system, um, they'll, they'll make fewer mistakes. It'll be an easier learning curve for them and everyone will have a little bit more fun. Right. And well, when, so I play in a weekly group and one of the things I know, like everybody has fun with, especially with the idea of being a game master, <laughs> but it takes so much time to prepare just to run a session. And when the players go off the rails or threaten to go off the rails, it can feel like, um, you, from a player perspective, right? Collaborative st- storytelling perspective, like all roads lead to this one mule quest, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so how do you address that or think about that? Um, I look at it like you, you, you hear the term sandbox with mass multiplayer games often mm. um, where people can go around in the world and do whatever they want to. So if you're playing like Ark Survival Evolved, you can go around and tame dinosaurs or build huts or whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very much that way as a game master, you have to be the world and you have to be able to respond to anything that they say in a logical way. And if the rules support that, that's very easy because they ask you a question, you think logically about an answer and then you give it to them. Mm-hmm. So I ran a Magitech Chronicles game in Las Vegas and they had to get off of this planet that's literally coming apart. So it's, it's gravity has been affected. It's going tumbling into the sun. The planet is shattering and they need to get to the spaceport. And one of the players said, wait a second, you know, the city's pretty old. Wouldn't there be a sewer system underneath the city? And as a game master, I was like, oh, crap. Well, there totally would be. Like, why wouldn't there be a sewer system under the city? And so, you know, we did some rules. But on the fly, I had to make up a new adventure where they went down in the sewers. And I decided what they fought there and what they were going to run into. And then I had to branch that back into uh, connecting to the main storyline I'd already written. And I had to do all that on the fly in a way that players had no idea that I hadn't planned for the entire thing. Mm. And it's difficult, but when you hit mastery, man, is it fun. So have you ever like studied improv at all? Uh, no, I did do Toastmasters for five years, which helped a lot. That's good. Yeah. I know one of the, like, the core tenets of improv is like have, adopting a yes and mentality, you know, mm-hmm. rather than shutting people down and redirecting them, kind of rolling with it and a willingness to... to be less than perfect i imagine well i wish that made its way into the the gaming world more i think that that is a wonderful attitude to have yeah maybe there should just be like an improv primer like fun done in character for for these game books yeah i'm gonna have to look into that yeah just a thought
I know down in California, one of my previous guests wrote a book called Improv for Writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, might be worth checking I'll look, out. I'll look that up. I might, I might purchase that very book. <laughs> yeah, and I know she'd like to connect with some people in the community as well. So maybe we can do that. I, I'd love to see these skills be more present in the role-playing community. It is a lot of fun. Did you ever hear about, by the way, because you and I are of an age, I think, do you remember like the text-based online, like multi-user dimensions and those things? Oh, absolutely. I played all of them. Um, I still remember Legend of the Red Dragon was my favorite. So there was a variation called the Mush. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah, yeah. And so it was that experience of people co-authoring an experience, almost like a book, because it was in text form. You know, there were paragraphs and characters and dialogue and stats it was it was amazing and we were we were doing true collaborative storytelling and and it was the perfect it was the perfect like tabletop rpg if you had the right people i would argue (laughs) well you need you needed some guidance and parameters and you needed more you needed multiple people in charge to like approve storylines and those kind of things but it was very cool and so if there's one thing that you would share with, like, actually I have this question written down. This is just a good one here is, you know, you used to talk a lot about writing fast. Um, and I noticed you pivoted toward slowing down and focusing more on craft. And I was hoping you talk about that a little bit. That's a huge misnomer. I'd love to set the record straight with that. Great. Um, no, I absolutely still believe in writing fast. Nothing has changed. Now Great. I have to make a video. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, I've succeeded. No, flow state, people don't understand. What you're trying to get into is flow state. Mm. That is the holy grail. And so what you are doing is like a monastic monk, you are literally training your mind to get into flow state on command. Mm. I can do it in two seconds now. I can sit at my desk, tune everything out, boom, I'm writing. This skill is amazing. And once you've co-opted it and can, can use this at, on demand, then mm. you can crank out words really, really fast. And so I still write the words really, really fast. What's different is I don't write words every day. Mm. Right. So plotting and story are things that need to be gardened. And I have a book called Plot Gardening that talks about that. And for me, I can work on a book for you know eight months in my head and then sit down and crank it out in five days. Yeah. Um, God's War is the last book in my Magitech Chronicles series. This is like the penultimate book in the series, and it had to be amazing. I wrote it in five days. Mm. Yeah, and I think I, I think that's the sexy thing where probably the misinterpretation thing is, is, well, gosh, if I could write a novel every five days, I could build this series really fast and get all sorts of products to market. And right? some people can. Yeah. And, and I think that's the problem where... Um, lots of people assume that you can and will want to do that. And what I found is I don't, I need a few months off a year to think and to develop and to do things that I enjoy and to consume content. Could I write novels all the time and and increase my productivity maybe for a few years, but I mean, I would learn to hate it and I don't ever want to do that. And and, in other industries, the thing, the gap is people talk about this, but we can't see the data or the results. And so you've made this shift and like, have your results suffered as a result of slowing down? Um, I, well, we talked about last year, I made $350,000. My previous record was like 202. Mm-hmm. 
And most years I was releasing six to eight novels. Last year I put out two. Mm. So my productivity went way down in that regard and I made way more money. I learned a lot more about marketing my backlist and I'm spending more time crafting better marketing and um, doing more world building and working more with my community and, and sort of asking what my readers want and then spending my time giving them that. So mm. what my day looks like right now, on average, I'm probably writing 2,500 to 3,000 words of answers in mm -hmm. my Facebook group on any, any typical day. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so for those of us without a backlist, should I interpret this answer to be I should race it to have a backlist and then slow down to monetize uh, if, it? If the answer is that you need to have 10 books to be successful, like let's say one 10 book series, mm -hmm. um, and you can write that in one year, or you can write that in nine years, you've got to make your own choice. Mm. And a lot of people will assume, I can't write that in one year, and if I do, it'll be crap. When in fact, if it becomes your true obsession, and mm. that's what you're going to do for that year, you might churn out the best series of your life and crank it out in like nine months. Right. Um, it, it really comes down to what you as a person want, and what people I think don't necessarily realize or want to accept is, just how much you have to sacrifice to produce at that level. Right. Well, you definitely have to let go of the things that aren't serving you, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, like old, or one, old goals, right, that, that well, you don't actually it's, it's need. It's more creature comforts. Yeah. So most people will argue they have no time and they never take any time for themselves. But when you look at their, their given day, there's lots of things like that half-hour trip to Starbucks and, you know, the, the, the hour and a half of Netflix you watch in the evenings mm -hmm. and... You know, you can, you can go through your day and generally you can find some things and it's, these are things that you love and are uh, very important to you. But if, if, if you don't cut those out and put in something that is a true priority like writing, the writing is never going to get done. Mm. Can you just cut that out or do you need something that you also have to insert that restores your capacity? Like if you thought of yourself as a battery with a certain amount of energy every day, like cutting things out when you're at zero would that make sense or is there something else that needs to go with it? Um, I, I think we all have to, to look to our support systems, the people in our lives um, who care about us to answer that a little bit because mm. we may not know the answer ourselves. We may think things are healthy and that we're fine and we've mm. removed this psychological um, salve that we've been using for some time and you know maybe we think there's going to be no effects but you, you do nothing but work for two years and, and you end up bitter. Um, yeah. It's the bitterness trap. And this is something that I, I, I almost fell into myself a couple of times where you're just so frustrated and tired and, you know, you feel like everything is deteriorating that mm -hmm. you, you take, you adopt a very negative mindset and mm -hmm. we really have to be vigilant about that. I mean, I still do gratitude exercises every day. Mm. Would you be willing to talk a little bit more about, about this, this, this trap? Like, what does that look sure, like? Sure. How do I, how do I know that I'm falling into it? Um, if you're, if you're looking at circumstances and you are mentally envisioning, you know, punishing people or scenarios where you're coming out and showing people up or, you know, if it's consuming an inordinate amount of your attention. Mm. So you're, you know, you're replaying something someone said to you and you're thinking about, oh man, I could have done this instead. When you're really ruminating on it, um, to an unhealthy level, that's, that's definitely not serving you. And it's something mm. that everyone's prone to do. And if it happens on a very regular basis, it becomes a habit. And that's where bitterness is, where if you are regularly contemplating these negative things that have occurred to you or the things that are bad about your situation, like you hate your job and yeah. you feel like maybe yeah. your relationship's not the best, um, that's not going to help you. And 
it's hard to make the shift and try to be more positive because when somebody asks you, well, what's the reason you don't necessarily have a concrete reason you can tell them, right. but trying to be more positive makes me a happier person. Right. And so what are some tools you've, you've developed or supports that you developed to help get you out of that? Uh, Tony Robbins has a, a great hour of power DVD that I still listen to. I don't even know what he, if he came out with it in like the eighties or what I've had it forever. Mm. Um, but basically you're, you're developing kind of some mantras that you go over. So I work out for an hour every morning and I'm thinking about the positives in my life, the things that I'm happy about. And I have mm. a healthy son and my wife and I didn't think we'd be able to conceive. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's amazing for us. I have mm-hmm. a wife. I, I married the woman of my dreams. You know, I'm complaining that I made $350,000 in a year. I mean, <laughs> that, those are some quality problems. Yeah. So I, I think about, I have my health, you know, I, 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 I happen to live near Silicon Valley at a time when my skill set as an engineer would be useful. Yeah. Uh, I happen to be born at the time when that same skill set would be valuable as an author. Uh, mm. There's so many things that had to come together to make my life possible in the way that it is that I, I'm thrilled. And there are problems and challenges that I still have to deal with every single day, but at least I can say, you know what, I'm proud of the person that I am and I'm grateful for the stuff that, uh, the circumstances that have kind of allowed me to, to be who I am. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And so for people who want to find you and learn more, um, how can they do that? Um, if you are an author, then Chris Fox writes, it's probably the best uh, website to check out. Um, I have a couple of different YouTube channels. Chris Fox writes is the writing advice. Um, Chris Fox RPs is storytelling, world building, um, and, uh, you know, game mastering advice and, and tools and tips. Awesome. That's, those sound super cool. Um, yeah. Well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I had a blast. Yeah, me too. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.